Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Are you ready to talk about the coolest subject on earth, the electric guitar? Oh, you better believe it. My favorite thing to talk about. All right. In addition to guitar playing, I thought we'd discuss a few other topics too, like songwriting, performing, collaborating, band dynamics, sideman roles, etc., etc. Sound good? Awesome. Can't wait, man. I appreciate you having me on the program here. You're welcome, man. Thanks for coming on. So before we talk about what you're up to today, why don't you give our listeners a potted history of your guitar playing and musicianship? How is it that you came to possess this particular brand of dark magic? Well, uh, you know, growing up, uh, my brother and I early on would emulate the one and only Eddie Van Halen on our Brian lacrosse sticks in the garage. Hockey so, sticks? Uh, lacrosse sticks. Oh, lacrosse sticks. So it kind of started there. We, we were sort of imitating what we thought they were doing. I didn't actually get a real guitar until I was 14 years old. So that's when I began sort of the exploration uh, in earnest. But you've been thinking about it and listening to hard rock for some time beforehand? Yes. We, when we were younger, we were big Def Leppard guys. Uh, Van Halen loved Motley Crue. And I was also pretty influenced by my mom's pop sensibilities. She listened to a lot of Michael Jackson, Genesis, The Police, stuff like that. So, so I, pretty promiscuous as far as styles go. Absolutely. I kind of kind of liked everything. Probably, I'd say country music was probably the only thing early on that I didn't really have a whole lot of exposure to. Anyways, but getting back to what you were saying in my development, I, my brother and I began kind of 13, 14 years old, pretty typical. And started out on a pretty steady diet of Ozzy, Van Halen. We were in the Dream Theater, a lot of the thrash bands, Megadeth, loved Pantera, Metallica. Uh, and also the instrumentalists. We were really into Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, Ingve Malmsteen. Long meandering road here of discovery. Uh, so, you know, it began with that. Uh, we took guitar lessons for a couple of years and then really sort of taught herself. Did you guys that. start taking guitar lessons at the same time? I was two years ahead of my brother. He caught up to me pretty quickly, but we did take them at the same time. It was kind of fun because we would come home from school and I'd hear my brother working on the Mr. Crowley solo, Randy Rhodes. I'd be doing my Van Halen thing. We started to sort of work on it together almost like a collaboration, eventually started playing and jam together. Yeah, brother music duos are among my favorite things in music. I love Van Halen and Pantera and all the other brother bands out there. Couldn't agree more. It, there's definitely that, that dynamic. I'd say when we were younger, I was a little bit more eager to perform. My brother, I used to call him the bedroom shredder. Uh, he was one of those guys uh, that, that just sort of sat at the edge of the bed and would work on his Ingve Malmsteen licks. Yeah, I, they're out there, the bedroom shredders. They're like rare sights in the wilderness. <laughs> yes. You have to document them and call David Attenborough. Yes. But anyway, so yeah, we, we continued on it. And what's interesting, too, is at the same time, when I was in high school, I actually um, was recruited by some friends to play some jazz bass. They had a, a fusion group. Uh, we played fusion uh, jazz standards. So did you and your brother have a bass at home? I eventually acquired one. Well, actually, funny story here. When I got a bass, now mind you, I was playing a jazz band. We were playing, you know, Cole Porter tunes and 
Coltrane and, you know, respectable jazz. So the bass that I actually purchased was a BC Rich Warlock. Yeah, naturally. It was purple. Yeah, it looked more like Gene Simmons' bass. So that was interesting when we, we played at, you know, Trattoria's Ristorante and Butler. And I the thing moved. is, I bet you could get great bass tones out of it. Yes. Great bass. Not, not for jazz, necessarily. But it was, a, it was a great instrument. Very, very memorable. So I kind of learned how to, how to play within the jazz idiom. I used to do the Bell and Jazz Festival with these guys. Now, I will say the guys that I played with were phenomenal musicians, so I was sort of going along for the ride. The one thing that they liked about me is that I could keep time really well with the bass, which is really the most important thing with that instrument. So I really I learned how to be steady and be sort of a reliable backline. I'm glad that you said that because I've heard it described that bass players keep the time and drummers supply the style. I would say too. What's interesting about jazz is that you you really you need to park it with that bass because you have the other instruments or the guys that are doing the showing off. They're 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 improvising, so it's the bass is really the anchor in in that style of music. To your point, and even the drummer, the drummer's gonna do his you know wankery if you will, but the bass player is the guy that even when that drummer's taking a break that he's there all the time. He's what the guys can fall back on. So you and your brother are learning guitar and then you pick up this bass gig and you're influenced by several styles of music. Then what happens? Well what what happened was I got to college and we started to get exposed to some some different uh, more experimental guitar music at the time, there was a, a guy that we had read about in a guitar magazine. His name was David Torn. He is a experimental player that does a lot of looping and textural guitars. So he has CDs that are probably unlistenable to the public, but he does really interesting things with the guitar. When so was this coming out? This was probably the mid-90s. It's uh, pretty early for loop sampling. Yes. Well, t- Torn's first main album was an ECM release. Uh, it was a, it's a jazz label. And it was called Cloud About Mercury. It came out in 1987. Had Bill Bruford on it from Yes. So some some heavyweights on that album. But but he came kind of full circle in the mid-90s is when he really started to, to put out some albums. And it was a, a completely different approach to the guitar. He can, he can play. He can play jazz. But he would do a lot of sort of uh, Indian influences, ragas. Uh, he would do the drone uh, looping, where he would loop a phrase for a minute, play that back, and then would build textures upon that. So he, got, I know he got involved in, in scoring some movie soundtracks and such. So really got influenced by this guy. Well, that's a proper loop sample there because. I know that it's sort of easy to loop a short groove that lasts 10 to 15 seconds, but then to play an entire song format that elapses over a minute or so, or maybe even two minutes, that's pro material in my opinion. Yeah, and it, it was a complete break from what we were used to. It used to be, oh, this guy can play a 1,000 notes per minute, but now here you have a guy that, that's really just laying down some haunting textures that are very spaced out. He uses delay masterfully and he's just building this sort of orchestra of guitars and you know you need to use he he uses effects but but he's using different tones on his guitar he's shown you the tenets of composition in real time yes and a lot of this was freeform 
And then sometimes he would have drummers. So he would build loops that were sometimes rhythmic, sometimes just free, almost as if you had a synth patch and you had a, a synth player that would be playing that. He would be building that on the guitar with, with sounds. It was really interesting and compelling at the time. So given your view of this sort of, sort of guitar playing and your own playing, how would you describe yourself as a player today? Are you sort of an experimental player or more of a lead player? How would you describe your particular brand of electric guitar playing? I, I consider myself to be a texturalist as a guitar player. I went through that lead phase. It was something that I didn't feel like I wanted to, you know, train for that track meet. I didn't ever had the patience or the stamina to train for that track meet. What perfect way to put it. Yeah. The, 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 all those fast techniques and the timing on the picking that you really need to basically just sit there with a metronome in your bedroom all night long. You got to play every day to get that together. Yeah. I've always been more interested in the song and what guys can bring to the table from a textural standpoint, I've appreciated, I should say, I've really come to appreciate guitar players that are a little bit more minimal. So my, as a guitar player, I feel like I try to be a more of a complimentary player these days. I'm trying to fill the space as efficiently as I can and as interestingly as I can without stepping on any toes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Do you mind if we do a quick demonstration? Maybe we can get a listen to some of this textural approach to sure. the electric guitar. Yeah, spell that, play that chord out again. You know, maybe with a clean tone. So just giving it a completely different flavor. And if you'll notice that that first part of this progression has got that dark heaviness and then I kind of, it, it gets sort of an optimistic sound. That's it's got an uplifting motion to it. Right, and, and what, what I love about open tunings is how they, the timbre of that chord, the vibe of the chord changes, even though you've got those drone strings at the bottom that are doing the same thing. So if I'm going through this progression, you have something like this. What it, So that's something that I really have worked a lot on, where you're moving that heavy, that power chord shape. But you have like beautiful chime on top of it. Exactly. And what it's a very sort of dense chord. Yeah, very dense. And I like, I like to try to find those interesting voicings. And then when you're using drone strings, it's a good way to, and what I mean by that, sometimes I will take the G and the B string, tune them to the same note. So it really kind of brings out uh, maybe a note in the chord. Let's hear what sort of sounds that provides, tuning-wise. Sure thing. One second here. So I've tuned the, the B string and the G string, tuned those both to A. So it gives it that sort of somber... Thank you. 
Yeah, so the central thesis there seems to be just, you know, ring out in this A tonality. And you just pick up the magical mystery of happenstance from all these maybe open string drones and the way they overlap. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a player that I wanted to mention that, that had a huge influence on me with these tunings, in addition to the David Thorne that I mentioned, is a guy named Ian Thornley. I think he's probably the most underrated rock player out there. Has a, or had a band called Big Wreck that started back oh, in the yeah. late 90s. This guy did really cool stuff with, with detuning guitars. He was, a big, he was a big Soundgarden fan. You can really hear that influence in his playing. And that's actually not great. He's the singer too, right? He's a singer. He's a, also a guitar virtuoso. Amazing. That's the guy we're talking about, right? Yes. It's, every time I watch that guy, I'm just dispirited. I'm like, oh, holy shit, that's what's possible. Nobody knows about this guy. And I've seen him many times. He's, he is a hell of a slide player. He can shred like a real shredder. And uh, again, does really proper cool, shredding. Proper shredding. Does really cool stuff with the tunings. And honestly, more than any of his, again, the, the shredding I was always into, but it was the the tunings that he used that fascinated me the most. That's where I got that, that sort of those drone tunings. Yeah, can you give me a little bit of slime with a altered tuning? What's, what's going on with this sort of tone here? So this actually makes slide playing probably a lot more interesting because you're, you you sort of can't miss you you're you've got the slide going the whole way across the string and you can hear that drone can sort of get that exotic yeah, sound, if you will. Yeah, that was pretty incredible sounding. Yeah, and, and the, the drone strings are what really bring out that flavor. And when you double them, especially with the slide, even when I record slide guitars, sometimes I like, because the G string is sort of that sweet spot when you play with a slide. It has the, the most tension. Uh, so when you use the the B and the G and you make those unison notes and you use the slide, you can yeah, really make you it can pop. You can really dig into it. If that's one of the issues with slide is it's difficult to get those melody lines to speak properly because of the string tension issue. But if you can really dig into your most tension wrought string, the G string, along with the B string, then that's why it just pops right out of there. Exactly. And, and these tunings, when you're playing a full chord again, just sound really interesting with that slide. You can be expressive. Uh, Thornley obviously can do a lot more than I can with it, but, but it's another textural device that you can use to enhance a rhythm part or using delay and even just the atmospherics, the, the, the feedback that you get from just shaking that slide. Like yeah, that. Yeah. Is that D? That's D. Yeah. Turn my distortion on here. Yeah. 
So you and I have talked extensively about hard rock and metal, and you've mentioned that one of your biggest influences is Eddie Van Halen. What is it about Van Halen's style that was attractive to you as a young listener? And what is attractive about him today as you listen from a mature musician's perspective? Well, there's no question, and I think this was the same with every kid when it came to Eddie Van Halen, the guy just looked cooler than anybody that played the guitar. He looked like he always looked like he was having fun. Doesn't take himself too seriously. He's sort of a ham. Uh, yeah, he's always hamming it up and smiling like that live without a net video. Yeah, he's having a good time. They're they're just. It seems like a band in general that just loves what they're doing. And so I think when I was younger. I, it was more that he looked cool, and he did the stuff that you just did with the tapping that you didn't know what he was doing. You couldn't, you had to just use your imagination. So as I got older, I started to dig into him more. I just started to realize, too, that it was everything about his playing, the, the phrasing, it's his, the vibrato was amazing. But what my brother and I always noticed was we would be playing a, a blues scale, but when Eddie Van Halen does it, there's something different about it. It's like he's he's adding notes. He's 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 using phrases that guys don't use. And this doesn't just apply to my brother and I. It just seems like he plays differently than everybody. Well, it's possible to sound very square and dorky with the blues scale. Exhibit A, right there. Right. Yes. Exhibit A, this the straightforward dorky blues scale. You're like, wow, that guy's pretty yeah. original sounding. Yeah. <laughs> But then you have Van Halen's approach to that, and it, it is sort of bewildering, the phrases he comes up with. Exactly. A lot of sort of um, legato like that. I'm Le not very good at it. Legato, he was he was uh, influenced by Alan Holdsworth. And if, if you've listened to Alan Holdsworth, you'll, your mind will be blown because <laughs> he is... But that, that whammy bar stuff that you hear from Van Halen, Alan Holdsworth was doing that before, and, and Van Halen always gave him credit for that. Well, the thing is, like, you can toggle the whammy bar in such a way that it keeps your strings going. It's almost like you're strumming. So, like, you can, like, be doing ha hammer-ons and pull-offs in your one hand and then, like, operating this lever, essentially. And the electric guitar begins to take on otherworldly perspectives there. Really, there's nothing like that because yeah. no other instrument can reproduce that sort of uh, wacky action. Well, you know, that was the thing about Van Halen. It was the way that he used that bar. He was a, he was unhinged. He was a wild man. And that takes a certain amount of... This is another thing that I came to admire about the man. The risk-taking. Oh, he yeah, doesn't totally. play it safe. He He's making that guitar squeal. And if you play very loudly you you get self-conscious because you can kind of hear every little thing. This guy cranks the amps up, and he's making his guitar squeal perfectly in pitch, and he just takes chances on the instrument. And I, so I've always enjoyed that, that, that sense of adventure when he's playing. Sure. That kind of bravery was demonstrated by Jimi Hendrix, who would take the whammy bar as far as you could take it in the late 60s and early 70s. But the difference is the... Technology had improved to such a degree that you could really toggle that whammy bar in the late 70s and early 1980s, and your guitar would stay a lot more in tune. So if you saw Hendrix at Woodstock, there's a bunch of footage, he's crushing that whammy bar. His guitar is not rallying 
<laughs> it's, exactly. it's it's so whacked out of tune by the halfway through a song it's 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 difficult and you can you can tell he's fighting it but it's the yeah. it's the emotion of that that tune though that it just even if the guitars are a little, little out of tune it, it's unhinged it's so yeah, it's adventurous unhinged. what he was doing and the feedback uh right and this is before you had a floyd rose system that's keeping that guitar in tune so right so like by the time van halen was doing it, he almost had free reign and he really did take it to the next level because you could really go after it and not destroy the guitar's tuning right and he influenced technology in that regard because guys started to play that way because of van halen and you know next thing you know these guitar companies like kramer and ibanez they you know they're developing these trem system so because that was what guys needed to be able to do that stuff yeah i remember the two of them there was a kaler and a floyd rose correct that had like the floating maneuver where it was controlled somehow by springs and then by a locking mechanism on the nut that allowed you to stay in tune right you could you could go both ways on that bar you could go up and down like you said it floated and then at first, it was the single locking at the top, but then you had the double locking, and that's when you could really go. Oh wild. yeah, you, it locked also on the bridge. Correct. You would actually cut, cut the ball, cut the ball off. off, and you would just use an Allen yeah, wrench. Yeah, that's crazy. I remember those. They were a pain to to fix. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on to your musical endeavors, as far as band play and sideman rules. What is it that you want in a bassist and drummer when it comes time to be accompanied? Well, for for me, these guys should damn near be sleeping together. They should have a sense of intimacy towards one another, um, and I, I just believe that I agree. They got to be on the same the same page, and it's almost like they're a. I consider them a team within a team. So you have the whole band that's your team, but that that bass player and the drummer. Or those guys that are that are locking in you know, the bla- if a bass player is worth any salt he's he's going to be wants to know what the the kick drum's doing so he can really lock in on some of those accents so f- for me I want the bass player to be versatile I want a guy that that could slam a Ramones tune with a pick or he could float over blues changes like a, a John Paul Jones from from Zeppelin for me for a drummer it's all about simple I don't get me wrong on this. I love the beasts. I I love the chopsy guys, the Neil Perts of the world, the Neil Perts, the Mike Portnoy's. But I love the guys that just are the anchor in that music that that know how to leave room for everybody else. Here's the thing about the simple drummers versus the the gymnastic style drummers is not many people can pull off the Neil Pert maneuver most of the time it just sounds uncomfortable and bad and just too much drums where someone like uh, phil rudd from acdc who keeps it so simple or ringo Starr, or even to some degree lars ulrich of metallica you got these drums that are just filling the role of drums without having to show off like their yingwei malmstein on the drums it's right and it, it's not a it's not an instrument in the band setting that's that's really supposed to be showing off it's it's the anchor i think you bring up a good point about like a guy like phil rudd it it, he plays with with feel with us with a swing 
And sometimes with those metal drummers, you can get guys that are a little bit stiff. Tell you another guy that I really love on the drums is Phil Collins. Phil Collins, yeah, just sure. he, not only does he have that sort of simple, uh, simple drumming patterns that he's using, but it's it's the tone, it's the those big, the big snare drum, the big kick, the the, the signature toms that he uses. So it's more it's more the, the the way that the drums sound in his music as well. Yeah, he's got that s- weird snare drum sound that i think was devised in the early 80s the gated snare you ever hear about that yeah it was hugh padgham was the uh, their producer genesis producer earlier in the early in those days and i think he sort of i think by accident it was by accident but what a remarkable drummer i i do like phil collins i I do like that solid simple drumming relying more on the tone and sound of the drums than gymnastics on the drums for sure, you know, and I think a lot of these guys probably have more chops than people realize, but they they know when to throw that that sort of curveball in there every now and again and, and show what they can do. But they they stick to the script, and they they anchor a tune. You know, it's a, you want you want people to move to the to songs. You want them to swing. You want them to rock. So the drummer the drummer has to I call it staying home. He has to stay home and hold down that that beat. Stay home, drummers, please. <laughs> don't, go, don't go out. Just stay home. Stay home. And some gigs, actually, we're going to need you to stay home. <laughs> so anyways, once you got the perfect rhythm section together and it comes time to write a song, for you, does it always begin with a riff or do you have a sort of grander vision of a song scope and scale before you even pick up a guitar? It usually starts small for me. It, it's start, usually with a riff or even a bass line. A lot of times with Patton, I will throw an overdrive pedal on the bass and I'll work on sort of a guitar riff on the bass, if you will. And that's sort of how I get, I work backwards. Then I come up with a cool bass line, then I get the guitar, figure out what I need to, to enhance that. And then maybe I kind of work on a chord progression. So I never have a grand vision of a song. It usually it starts with a with a riff, which I always record on my phone. I use that voice recorder. I have hundreds of little like one minute riffs that I keep a catalog of, and I div- and I listen to them during the day, even when I'm at work and it's slow. I'm listening to those riffs over and over, trying to develop them from there. Yeah, that's a good strategy, and I think most people, myself included, start small. It's harder to have grander visions and work from the top down. You sort of have to work from the bottom up, or at least I do, and most musicians that I know have to do it that way. So once you have the perfect rhythm section and you have the songs that you've constructed to the best of your ability, and it comes time to perform, what are some of the strategies that you use to ensure that your presentation goes off without a hitch? Do you ever get nervous? Oh, me? No. Uh, you have a barf bag, by the way. I'm feeling a little queasy over I here. do. Okay. Chasing the cores, <laughs> barf bag. Just kidding about that. Uh, for me, the performance part of things has always been a little bit of a struggle. I love building the music, composing it. It's not that I have stage fright, but I, I've always sort of had trouble letting go. So that the only thing I can do to, to be loose is to prepare the best that I can. I want to be able to not have to think about a song 
you know, they, they talk about football players, guys that, that aren't there out, out on the field. They're thinking about what they have to do. They're just sort of reacting. They know what they're supposed to do instinctually. I agree, but you get there. If you're trying out new repertoire, it's harder to get to that instinctual level. I'm just throwing it out there, but for, by and large, I agree. You got to be loose. Keep going. Exactly. And so it's just getting a plan for what, what I want to do if, if I have a solo coming up working some ideas. I'm not going to work a solo out completely. I like to leave a little bit of room for, for improv there, but, but have, a, have some maybe licks that I want to hit. I want to understand that progression, maybe what I can do with it. I'm not the best soloist in the world. So it definitely helps for me to kind of play that progression the night before and work it out a little bit and get comfortable with it so that I can, the idea is to perform too for people. I think musicians sometimes sometimes forget that they have an obligation to entertain people. So you know, there's and there's different types of music. It's not that everybody has to jump around like uh, Motley Crue or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a sort of spectrum between recital and performance, right? And yes. certainly, you know, at this late day, I feel that jumping around is a little bit distracting from a listener and spectator's standpoint. But sometimes, you know, if you're 19 and you're watching a punk band, like that is sort of part of the exhilaration. For for sure. It's knowing the audience. Um, it, but it, I think what I mean by performing, too, is that, that people see that you're confident with what you're doing and that you've they can tell you've worked on it and that you you want to convey that music to them. So so there's a sense of a purpose in what you're doing. You know, one of the, early on when I used to gig, I would if I would mess something up, I would grimace or something. And I had a friend tell me, "You got to quit doing that." You're just advertising to everybody that you made a mistake. Exactly. So meanwhile, one, they didn't even know. Right, and that was one of the biggest lessons I learned. So you know, since then I've really felt a lot more comfortable. You know, the the other thing I try to tell myself before playing a gig is that for Patton, for instance, it's music I wrote. So. It's, I'm an expert on it. I know this music, so I need to just go up there and own it, and people will enjoy it. Like a conductor. Exactly. So I like being calm, cool, and collected on stage. I like the John Lennon approach compared to the Red Hot Chili Peppers flea approach. I agree with you completely on that, and because I, I know me, just even going to metal shows, you know, you have, you have guys that that aren't yeah, musicians totally. that sort of react physically with mosh pits. And yeah. I'm, I'm more of a, I'm looking at the guitar players and dorking out and seeing what they're doing. And yeah, there's two the guys at metal shows. There's the <laughs> arm folders and there's the moshers. <laughs> exactly. I'm one of the arm folders, I'm right? An, I'm I, an I just arm stand folder. there with my arm folder just check that shit out. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it's, it almost mirrors what you're saying about the musicians. And, yep. and sometimes for me, I'm not worried about whether a guy's jumping around or whatever. I, I like that he's just playing the hell out of that guitar. That's, yeah, a, that's enough for me. Yeah, he's jumping around enough just on the fretboard. Exactly. So are there any standout musical moments that you've had, either recorded or on stage or even witnessed from other performers? So what I'm asking here is, you know, have you achieved any goals musically? Yeah, you know, I I don't have platinum albums hanging on my wall at home, unfortunately. Yeah, most but, most people don't. Right. But I I can say that I've played in such a, a variety of bands. For me, I, 
I have a lot of pride going back and listening to those albums. What's great about being a mu- musician, you have a record of yourself for yeah. all for all time. Somebody hundreds of years from now can come across your CD and hear you playing the guitar. Yeah, they can investigate your entire career arc, essentially. Yeah, so for me, I've been really proud of, when I think about all the work that went into making that music, to listen to some of those recordings, again, bands that have been very different. You know, my the first main band I played was Chalk Outline Party. It was more of a post-punk British sound that we we honed in on. Then we had the Longtime Darlings, which was that classic rock sound. We did an album with those guys, the uh, Honey Tree Evil Eye, which I thought was just a great rock album. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff to look back on there. I like the Baby Doll single from the Longtime Darlings. It's cool that that we do have these records, and you know I, I've been cataloging my output for many decades, and it is fun to to look back on some of the hard work that I've done, and I can really appreciate that that I have achieved some of my goals musically. Yeah, and, f- and from a performance standpoint, it, it's pretty cool to to look back and think about being part of a music scene in, in, in Pittsburgh. It's something that, you know, a lot of people probably find kind of impressive, even though to us, we, you know, you come to find out it's not a big deal. You're playing a gig at a local bar on a Friday or Saturday night, but that, that really defined who we were. And so there's some really good times associated with that play, le- learning how to play with other bands. Yeah, the band dynamic. There's a lot to look into there. I, I have had many great times in the performances and especially in the rehearsals. There's a, a special connection that happens at the level of the group that is a lot like a relationship. For sure. You know, you, you really get close to these guys and, and uh, you know, a lot of, lot of goofing off. But what's, what's fun, I really enjoy that social aspect of music. You know, we talked about when I was growing up with my brother, he wasn't quite as into the, to the band thing. That was something I've always been into. And maybe that's why yeah. I've become that textural type player that, that we're talking about here is because I, I've enjoyed the social aspect of, of creating a piece of art with other people. And for me, understanding what all the other instruments are doing, having a little bit of experience playing drums and bass and guitar, and, and, and it's like a blank canvas, and you're working to put that song together when it's done and recorded, you've basically made that record for all time. Yeah, so the textural approach not only reflects the music, but the relationships that went into creating the music. Right. And, and then the performance aspect of it does really have a social component that I've always appreciated. So on the same topic here, if you could form a band with any of the dead rock stars throughout uh, history, you know, who do you choose to play bass for you? Who do you choose to play drums or, or to sing? This is sort of a fanciful question, but it sounds like a fun one from my point of view. Yeah, well, for something that, and that's a, it's fun to think about that, actually. Uh, I would I would say that for my more mellow side, the vocalist, and he was also a really good guitar player that I would love to work with, would be Jeff Buckley. He could do amazing things with his voice, super, super atmospheric, uh, a great guitar player. He also messed around with tunings like I have. So I would say Buckley. And then for straight up rock, I would love to be in a band with Bon Scott, Phil Linett, 
from Thin Lizzy on bass. And actually, he could sing backing vocals with Bon Scott. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, the, man, you're putting together quite the super group. And maybe this one's a little bit cliche, but Bonham on drums. And what I love about Bonham yeah. is because he embodies for me the power, the tone, the he swings. He plays heavy, but he swings. That's what I he, he embodies for me the the, the typical drummer. That yeah, I it's would hard play. to beat that man. That, that's total rock power. I I didn't think about the question long enough to put together my own supergroup, and I'm not sure if I could top that. Yeah, and I, I would I would probably do some patent riffs, bring those guys in, and hell, maybe even bring in guest vocalist Chris Cornell as well. So yeah, the sky's the limit there. <laughs> So, Brian, it's been great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Maybe we can play some more textural type stuff for the outro. What do you think? You want to show me something else here? Sure. Sure.